Well, I began Galatians last week by quoting from uh, Martin Luther's uh, preface to uh, Galatians, and, and I want to continue that quote uh, this week. He's writing here about justification, about our right standing with God, about the righteousness that counts before God on the day of judgment. Here's what he says. Do we then do nothing? Do we nothing at all for the obtaining of righteousness? I answer, nothing at all. For this is perfect righteousness, to do nothing, to hear nothing, to know nothing of the law or of works, but to know and believe this only, that Christ has gone to the Father and is not now seen that he sits in heaven at the right hand of his Father, not as judge, but made unto us of God wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Briefly, that he is our high priest in treating for us and reigning over us and in us by his grace. In this heavenly righteousness, sin can have no place. For there is no law. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Seeing then that sin is here no place, there can be no anguish of conscience, no fear, no heaviness. But if there is any fear in your life, or grief of conscience, it is a token that this righteousness is withdrawn that grace is hidden and that Christ is darkened and out of sight. But where Christ is truly seen, there must be full and perfect joy in the Lord with peace of conscience, which thinks this way, although I am a sinner by the law and under condemnation of the law, yet I do not despair, yet I do not die because Christ lives who is both my righteousness and my everlasting life. In that righteousness and life, I have no sin, no fear, no sting of conscience, no care of death. What freedom that is. I am indeed a sinner as touching this present life and the righteousness thereof as a child of Adam. But I have another righteousness and life eternal by whom this my body being dead and brought to dust, shall be raised up again and delivered from the bondage of the law and sin and shall be sanctified together with my spirit. St. Paul in this epistle goes about diligently to instruct us, to comfort us, to hold us in the perfect knowledge of this most Christian and excellent righteousness. For if the article of justification is lost, then all true Christian doctrine is lost. He who strays from Christian righteousness falls into the righteousness of the law. That is, when he loses Christ, he falls into the confidence of his own works. Therefore, we also earnestly set forth and so often repeat the doctrine of faith or Christian righteousness that by this means it may be kept in continual exercise and may be plainly discerned from the active righteousness of 
the law. Martin Luther had a great understanding of the gospel, didn't he? And of grace and of God's righteousness. And of course, he got it from somewhere else, didn't he? Not from his own mind. He got it from Scripture. He got it from the Bible. He got it from places like the letter to the Galatians. And I see three truths in this passage we looked at, are looking at today. And the first is, found in verse 10, don't please men. Don't please people. In verse 10. Uh, the, uh, verse 10 is actually kind of a hinge verse in this argument. It connects back to verses 8 and 9, and then verses 11 and following flow from it. Because Paul was being charged by the Jewish teachers, the opponents, with preaching a gospel that pleases people. Because he said you don't need to be circumcised to belong to the people of God. And so the opponents were saying Paul, Paul is trimming down the gospel. He's not... He's not requiring everything that should be required because he wants to curry favor with others. But Paul is very clear, isn't he, in verse 10. I'm not seeking the approval of people. If I were trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Jesus Christ. Hasn't Paul just made clear from what we looked at last week that he's not seeking to approve people? Because what did he say in verses 8 and 9? He said... If anyone preaches another gospel, or if you receive another gospel, you're cursed. That's not the words of someone trying to please a person, isn't it? If you preach another gospel, if you receive another gospel, you're cursed. He's not trying to please others. And then he goes on to say, in the argument that we just read in verses 11 and following, I would have never become a Christian. If I wanted to please people, I would have remained a Jew in the Jewish religion. Of course, he remained a Jew ethnically, but he no longer remained in Judaism. You know, the desire to please people can lead us to hell. It's a, it's a deadly desire, isn't it? This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verses 42 through 44. And, of course, it relates to Paul. Paul was a Pharisee. Here's what Jesus says, John 5, verse 42. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. That's an amazing thing to say to someone, isn't it? Especially someone who's following God. At least they think they are. He says, I know you don't have God's love in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. That's why he knows they don't have God's love. They're not receiving Jesus. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? How can you believe? He says you can't believe because what you want, you Pharisees want, you want praise from one another. You want people to speak highly of you. And therefore you don't believe. Therefore, you're not trusting. At, at the end of John, uh, Jesus' public ministry in John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43, we read, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Let's put that belief in quotes. John 12:42. Many of them believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to be excluded. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is no saving belief that these people had. 
Because they wouldn't confess Jesus. Because they didn't want to be excluded. They didn't want to be looked down upon. Paul says in this chapter and in this verse, I was not motivated by receiving praise from people. Getting praise from people is delightful and wonderful, isn't it? It's great to be praised from people. I like it. You like it. We all love it. It's pleasant. If you say, I'm not motivated at all by getting praise from people, I'm not like that, then you don't know yourself. Right? You're, you're just wrong. You need some help. Yeah, no, we're all like that. We love receiving praise from people. And, 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 and inevitably we think about it because people are always evaluating us, aren't they? They evaluate how we look, how we do in our job, how we do in sports, how we raise our family. People, people evaluate. And so we think about how we're doing. Even our hobbies. People evaluate them, don't they? What are my paintings like? So we can become consumed with what people think about. Isn't that that what Jesus warns us of? We can become consumed with that and it can displace faith and trust in God. It, It can take center stage. It can become our God. It can begin to rule us. And, and here's the amazing thing. Even in religion, right? The, 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 even in following supposedly the things of God. Suddenly, perhaps subtly, things have shifted. We're no longer perhaps relating to God, but relating to others. In doing the things of God. That's the trap the Pharisees fell into. And we're all prone to it. It's one of the great dangers, isn't it? It's insidious. So what do we do? Well, we live in community with one another, don't we? I mean, that's one of the great things we do. We, we, we live together in a church together so that we can encourage one another to follow the Lord and correct one another and strengthen one another in small groups and in other settings. And we pray for each other, don't we? Because this is ultimately a spiritual reality, isn't it? We pray that following Jesus Christ and God our Father will be the most beautiful, enticing, and exciting reality in our lives. We pray that we'll see it. Because, because what I'm saying right now could just be words to you. Oh yeah, that sounds right. But for this to be a reality, that's a miracle, isn't it? To see this, that following Christ is better than the praise of people, that's a miracle that God works in our lives. Let's pray that it will be so. It was so in Paul's life, wasn't it? He had experienced such a miracle. Secondly, my second point here is be confident in the gospel. So first, don't please people. Pray that isn't so. But secondly, Be confident in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, verse 10, I don't please people, verse 11, because, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I'm not pleasing people because, he says, my gospel isn't a gospel that human beings would come up with, you see. My my gospel comes from God. It's not a human gospel. 
I did not receive it from any man. It wasn't passed on to me by any human being. I wasn't taught this gospel by anyone. Isn't that what Paul's saying? Here's where I'm bringing in the last part of the chapter, verses 17 through 24, which Mark read. I mean, what is Paul saying in those verses? When Jesus Christ was revealed to him on the road to Damascus, what did he do? Well, he didn't run up to Jerusalem and say, Peter, what do you think? What do you think? Is it okay? That's, that's his point there, right? I don't need to talk to Peter about it. What do you think, other apostles? I, I wonder, am I right? Hmm. No, no, that's not what he's thinking, is he? he, he he's preaching the gospel. He says, I didn't see Peter for what? Three years. And what was he doing in that intervening time? He was preaching the gospel. He wasn't wondering whether it was correct. He wasn't passing it by the other apostles. That's his point in verses 18 through 20. I didn't see Peter for three years, and then when I saw him, it was only for two weeks. I didn't need Peter. I didn't need James. Verses 21 through 24. Just, just hitting on these quickly. It's not hard to understand. The churches in Judea didn't even know me face to face. I didn't need to be in Jerusalem and Judea, the, the homeland of the gospel, you see. I didn't need to be there to preach the gospel. I didn't need their validation. I didn't need their ratification of my gospel. It, was, it, was, it is not a human gospel. I didn't receive it from anybody else. I wasn't taught it by anyone else, he says in verse 12. I didn't get it from Peter. I didn't get it from James. I didn't get it from the other apostles. I didn't get it from the churches in Judea. I got it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I got it on the Damascus Road. Isn't that what he's saying? I got it when Jesus appeared to me back to Acts 9, which I preached on some time ago now. I I got it when Jesus Christ personally appeared to me. And, and, And the gospel was given to me supernaturally on the Damascus Road. So I don't need a human teacher. Our gospel is a supernatural gospel. I mean, we don't all get it, do we, on the Damascus Road, but we get it from Paul, don't we, who saw Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. Our, our gospel comes from heaven, doesn't it? It's a, it's, a, it's a word from above, invading this world. It's, you know, to use a big word, it's a transcendent word, isn't it? It's a transcendent word that's been disclosed to us. We don't believe, therefore, what so many people in our culture think, and that is that our religion is the attempt of blind people to try to describe the elephant that is God, right? We, We don't know what God's like. We can't see him, and we're all blind trying to describe the elephant. But we don't believe that, do we? We believe that our faith, our gospel, has been revealed to us supernaturally, that God has spoken clearly and distinctly. Do we believe as Christians that we know everything about reality? Do we believe that we understand Scripture perfectly and God perfectly? Of course we don't believe that. We don't, we're, not, we're not saying in this postmodern world, and Christians have never said, we understand exhaustively God's truth. We're not, we're not suggesting that at all. But we are saying we know truly. That's a very important distinction, isn't it? We don't know exhaustively. We're finite. But we know truly. God has revealed Himself to us. We can be confident that the Gospel we preach is the Gospel. 
God has spoken. It's a matter of unbelief to say, well, we just don't know. There's so many things we don't know. Well, that's true, isn't it? But we know the central things. We know the gospel. It has been revealed to us. And it gives us confidence. It gives us confidence in talking to unbelievers. Understand what I'm going to say now. I'm, I'm not against canned approaches. But when we evangelize, we don't have to only engage in canned conversations with unbelievers. We can have dynamic conversations with them too where they significantly disagree with us. And we can be open to that sort of thing because we're confident, aren't we? Our gospel is true. It's true. We can be confident even if we're talking to an unbeliever. Sometimes this is scary. We don't know the answer to every question. How do I answer that? I don't know. Well, that's okay, isn't it? We don't need to know the answer to every question, do we? We know our gospel is true even if we can't answer every question. Because we know at the end of the day, that's not the fundamental issue, is it? People don't come to faith just because we can answer every question. No, there's always questions. I still have questions. You still have questions we can't answer. That's okay. Because we know the gospel is true. We know it's true even if, while we're talking to someone else, they ardently reject it. And they even get angry while they're talking to us. But we don't need to get angry, do we? Because we trust God. We trust His Word is true. And we know that when they get angry at us, that Satan is working in them, don't we? So we pray that God will reveal Himself to them. Because it's very hard for someone else to receive criticism. And that's what we're saying when we're preaching the Gospel. We're saying, you're going the wrong way. And that upsets people. But we can let God change them. We can speak His Word and be confident in the truth of the gospel that has been disclosed to us. So, we don't live to please people. We're confident in the gospel. And thirdly, we rest in God's grace. We rest in God's grace. I see that in verses 13 through 17, which is the story of Paul's conversion. Here's Paul's proof that he doesn't preach a human gospel, that he's not intending to please people. And his, his answer is, I've been changed. I've been converted. So let's, let's look at this in verses 13 through 17. He says, you've heard of my former life in Judaism. Before I was a Christian, I was part of Judaism. Paul himself says that, doesn't he? Distinguishing Judaism from faith in Christ. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Paul was a fanatical opponent of Christianity before his conversion. He was, he was absolutely convinced it was wrong. I, I, don't, I don't agree with the view that says Paul had a bad conscience, and that's why he was persecuting the church. No, I think he was absolutely persuaded that the Christian faith was a mistake. I think Paul was a person, you know, there are different ter- personality types. I don't think Paul was a person plagued with a lot of inner doubts. He is a very strong personality. And I think he was absolutely persuaded he was right. And he saw, he saw the Christian faith as very dangerous, as heretical. What do you do with heretics according to the Old Testament? You kill them. That's what it says. 
You put them to death. You remove them from the believing community. So I think Paul thought he was doing the will of God and putting them to death. I mean, if you believe in the false Messiah, you're sending people to hell. If we think it's right, I know there's debate about this, but if we think it's right to put people to death who kill other people, how much more we should put people to death who send people to hell? I think Paul thought something like that. I'm not advocating that view. I hope you understand that. Verse 14. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. I mean, we read about this in Acts, don't we? <clears throat> Paul, Paul agreeing with putting Stephen to death. Paul persecuting. Paul going to Damascus to imprison believers. And everyone who saw Paul in those days said, there is a bright and shining star in Judaism. Isn't that what they said? This person is going places. This person is zealous. This person is committed to the Lord. I mean, that's in Judaism. Here is a bright young student of Gamaliel and he's passionate and he's zealous and he's brilliant and he's committed and he knows the Scripture and he acts on what he believes. Watch that guy. He's going to be amazing. Paul was zealous. Surely Paul thought of himself as a modern-day Phineas. Remember what Phineas did? When the, when the Israelite man and the Midianite woman were sinning together, he took that spear and put it through both of them. And he's commended what? For zeal. For God. Surely Paul thought of himself as having the same kind of zeal that Elijah did when Elijah contended against the prophets of Baal and resisted Ahab and Jezebel. And he goes to Sinai and says, I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts. Surely Paul saw himself as like that. Surely Paul saw himself as a modern-day Maccabean. Remember those Maccabean guerrilla fighters in about 167 B.C.? who resisted the, the Hellenization of the Jewish religion. We're offering a pig on the altar, Antiochus did, if you remember that history. But the Maccabeans resisted it, and they put people to death, and they led a guerrilla movement in zeal for the Lord. Surely Paul saw himself as like that. He says in Philippians 3.6, that it was because of zeal for God that he persecuted the church. As to the righteousness of the law, I was blameless. And yet, and this is what Paul discovered, and yet Paul discovered that in doing all this for God, he was sinning. Isn't that remarkable? He was sinning. He was not pleasing God. He, he came to understand that he's the kind of person he describes in Romans 10. He had a zeal for God, but without knowledge. There's a danger, isn't there, in religion and morality. And the danger is it can become a means of idolatry. And that's what it was for Paul. And he didn't see it. He didn't see that his religion led to praise of himself. And we can become, can't we, smug and satisfied in how good we are. Even as Christians, 
can't we? We can fall into this. That's why Paul's writing this to the Galatians, to a church, right? He's writing this to Christians. He's not writing this to non-believers. We can fall into this as well. That's why we have these warnings here. We can fall into self-righteousness. We can become smug. One of the signs that we're falling into it is if we become defensive, right? When we're criticized. Defensive if somebody sees faults in our lives instead of open to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. Because when I become defensive, what am I saying? I'm a good person! (laughs) There's some God there that's being threatened in my life. So if Diane says something to me, she sees something wrong in my life, why do I correct myself? Because I'm worshiping myself. That's why. I don't want anyone to intrude on my deity. That's what's happening. You know, that's the gospel. I don't want to be, and you don't want to be, humble and weak like a child. We just don't like that standpoint. But we're desperate, aren't we? For the grace of God. Better to be in terror before God than to think we're good people. Better to feel desperate and to hide ourselves in Christ's righteousness. Well, let's keep going. What turned Paul around? Do you see what Paul's argument is? If I wanted to please people, I'd still be a Pharisee because I was that bright, young, shining star. That's what I'd do. If I wanted to please people, I would have stayed there because I was talked about everywhere. So what happened? What changed him? Verse 15, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Now, now the last part of that is what we talked about earlier. I didn't consult with anyone. My gospel came from God. But we look at the first part here. What explains the change in Paul's life? And the answer is God. God. God's will. Before he was born, while he was in his mother's womb, God had set him apart for the gospel, hadn't he? He called him by His grace. His effectual grace. God had decided before Paul was born, He will be my messenger and He will be saved. It happened where? On the Damascus Road. I mean, that's the verification. What else could you want? I mean, Jesus Christ appears to him and just totally turns him around. Not all conversions take place in that exact way. But all conversions are a miracle of God's grace, aren't they? And that's what's happening here. A miracle of God's grace. I'm not pleasing man, Paul says, because Jesus Christ invaded my life. He turned me around. He tells the same story in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was... Now, notice what he says now after he's a Christian about his previous life. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. That's what he says now after he's met Christ. 
He was a great sinner before he was saved, but he thought he was good. So do you know yourself today? Before God? I mean, really know yourself. I mean, we know what the creed says, but do you know yourself experientially? Do you feel before God that you're evil? That, that's, that's the mark, isn't it? Do we feel it? Paul came to understand that. He knew himself by God's grace. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. He didn't know himself. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's great news. Are you a sinner here today? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. People like you and all of us in this room are in that category. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost Isn't that remarkable? What a change. Paul was so proud of himself before he was a believer. And now he looks back and says, I'm the chief of sinners. I feel miserable about myself. I understand who I am before God. If we don't have that kind of painful sense of our sin, we don't understand God's grace. The, the, the pain comes first. First comes the sickness, then comes the healing. But once the healing comes, we can even praise God that we understand the sickness. Paul says in verse 16 of 1 Timothy, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. Did you notice that? Paul's conversion is an example. The grace of God that invaded Paul's life, that called him on the Damascus road by His grace, that set him apart from his mother's womb because God was well pleased to do that, that's an example for everyone who believes. Paul's conversion is a model for every conversion. Not the exact way it happened, but for the truth that God saves by His grace. That He elects. That He chooses. Isn't that here? He was well pleased to do this. It was God's will. I mean, that's election, isn't it? God chose to save Paul in his inscrutable wisdom and love. All conversions are ultimately due to God's grace, God's election, God's choosing. Because what does this verse say, right? He set me apart while I was still in my mother's womb. He called me by His grace effectually on the Damascus Road. Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6 show that works and election can't be separated. Or a better way to say it is grace and election can't be separated. And therefore, works are excluded. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Elected by grace. There's a remnant of Jews, he says, who believe by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Did you see it? Chosen by grace, not by works. The doctrine of election is so beautiful, not for debates, right? But because it excludes any works. 
Because it ascribes all the glory to God for our salvation. Because it points utterly and only to Him. Because we praise Him for saving us. It's His work and His alone. It removes any boasting, any pride in our lives. So I close just with an application. If we live by grace, truly, we're not impressed with our goodness, are we? Nor are we devastated by our badness. Both are true if we live by grace. We don't live on the basis of our goodness because we fall short. Nor are we devastated by our badness because both a superiority complex and an inferiority complex, they both come from what? Pride. That's remarkable, isn't it? People don't always think that, but it's true. Superiority complex, inferiority complex, self is still at the center, isn't it? It's ruling. If we say, I'm good. I don't need to be forgiven. Forgiven of what? I've lived a good life. That's pride, isn't it? That's not seeing ourselves. But it's also pride to say, I'm so bad, God can't forgive me. That's pride too. I'm so bad. I'm so bad. Christ's sacrifice can't atone for me. Well, that's pride as well. Self is still at the center. We're still not trusting in Christ, are we? We're looking ultimately to ourselves to save ourselves and both. How great the gospel is. How wonderful it is. Because we can just be honest about ourselves and say, I'm naked. I need to be clothed in Christ's righteousness. I'm blind. I need the gospel of grace to see. I'm poor. I need Christ to make me rich. I give everything to Him. That's what Paul did, didn't he? That's why he's not living to please people. Paul said, I played that game. I played that game. I don't think he's saying he never struggled with it anymore, but he's saying, I'm done with that game because I saw Jesus. Jesus revealed himself to me on the Damascus Road, and I live a new way now. I live to please God. I live to preach the gospel of grace. May that be true in our church, in our community, and in our families. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we pray that we will truly understand the gospel of grace. How subtle Satan is. How he deludes us and misleads us so that we so easily move away from this gospel of grace. How we pray, Lord, for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. That we would truly understand these things in our daily lives. Lord, how we long to have the liberty and joy and freedom of trusting in your grace and your grace alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.